0: So yeah, so if you have a Bible, uh, I would love for you to turn with me to the book of John, John chapter 1. Uh, we're in the, the middle of a series uh, we've called Living Scent, and as I kind of preface at the beginning when we first are kind of gathered together, um, this is something we started a few weeks ago, and we started in, really in the book of Genesis, in Genesis 1, at the creation account, the story of... Um, creation, but then we looked at chapter 3 specifically that week and saw how the fall had occurred, where sin enters uh, the world, where sin comes, and that begins this mission of this idea of living sin, that uh, they are sent out of the garden because of their sin. They've now been separated from God, but that was the beginning. The first gospel, if we really would say, is in Genesis 1, 15, uh, where... 3.15, 3.15, God, 3.15, 3.15, where God says, I'm going to put enmity between you. He's talking specifically to the serpent. He first uh, tells the serpent, like the actual animal of the serpent, to uh, that you're going to be stuck on the ground, on your belly. You're going to eat of the, the dirt and the dust. But then he turns and he's specifically talking, not just to the serpent anymore, but actually to Satan. And he tells Satan that I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman, and her offspring, and your offspring, but then he makes a promise that eventually, though, what's going to happen is, and it was a promise of the gospel, that yes, Satan would uh, present a a blow to Jesus, right? I mean, Jesus, because of the sin of the world, because of Adam and Eve's sin, and then that its effect on the whole world, yes, Jesus himself, this one seed of Eve, was going to come, and he was going to experience uh, suffering, great suffering, even to the point of death, even death on a cross, as we know in the New Testament. But ultimately, we know that Satan was destroyed in the resurrection when, uh, when, it, when his power over uh, even those who follow Jesus is—he cannot have that hold on us any longer because Jesus has presented a death blow to. Um, To Satan. And so what we see, though, is this is that's the beginning of a mission that's needed, a mission that's needed, because here's the cool thing is what we said is we go all the way. Then we fast forwarded from week one to uh, Genesis 12 and we looked at Abraham and how Abraham was blessed to be a blessing. God calls him out. And what we were saying really that week is, and this is this is what's so incredible about who God is, is that he calls you to himself, right? He calls people to come to him. We see that in the gospels. We see that with the disciples. He says, come to me. But then what does he do? As he brings people in, and that's what happens in salvation, right? When, when we experience who God is and we believe in the gospel, we put our faith in Jesus, we experience, we're united with him. Uh, this is what is so, uh, such a mystery in, in Scripture. This is why Paul would even describe it that way. The, the gospel is like this mystery. It's this great mystery because it's unfathomable to think that the holy God of the universe would offer salvation to sinful people. And so he brings them to himself. But what does he do? He blesses. He, he blesses by going after. He pursues and he, he brings people. He's drawing people to himself. He brings them in. But oftentimes what we see is what happens, right? When he brings them in, what does he do? He brings them to send them out. He brings them in and then he sends them out for mission. We see this throughout the whole Bible over and over. You see God calling people to himself, Abraham, Moses, even Jonah, he calls Jonah. And then he's like, Jonah's, you know, all the other prophets. Uh, Jonah is like, normally it's like he's prophesying, but that the book of Jonah is about the prophet. Uh, and it was really more a picture of even who God is and what he's done. But we see that he brings people in And then we fast forward again to Exodus 3, and we see the call of Moses. Moses, same thing, he calls him to himself. He comes in this fiery bush that will not uh, burn up. And Moses is like, "Ah, I want to go see what this is, why it's not consumed. And he goes, and God calls out to him and says, Moses, Moses. And then what we learned that week is that God hears the cry of his people. Even though the Israelites had probably most likely forgotten the Lord in their slavery, they were crying out. They don't even, we don't even know what they were crying to or who they were crying to. We don't even see that in scripture. Like, are they crying out to God, the Yahweh, their, their Lord, their, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, their God? We don't know. We just know they were crying out and God hears the cries. He sees their oppression. He knows that they have been mistreated. And now he says, I'm calling you Moses. God, what we, we learned in that is so incredible really is this. God comes down. He comes down. He speaks to Moses. God doesn't come down, hear the cry of his people, and God go, okay, I'm gonna go to Pharaoh, I'm gonna go to the people of Israel, and I'm gonna set them free. Yes, God is the one who does this, because we know he hardens the heart of Pharaoh, and Pharaoh says, no, 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 and then finally, yes, and he sends his people out. But what does God do? He calls Moses. He says, Moses, I hear the cries of my people. I see the need. I see, I hear, and I recognize need, but I'm gonna use you, Moses, to go and deliver my people, and you're going to lead them. See, again, God calls people to himself, and he sends them out, and we looked last week at Jonah, and this guy who's wanting to run from God, and he tries to run from God, and we tried to learn several lessons from uh, that story about Jonah running from God, and God continuing to pursue him. We see the hand of God throughout that book. Over and over again, you see in Jonah, God doing a work. He causes the storm. He he controls the mouth of a giant fish. Uh, he creates a plant to come and, over, and, and to bring a shade over, um, and appoints it. The word appoint happens. He appoints this, this, this plant to come and bring shade to Jonah. And then he, he appoints a worm to destroy that uh, same plant. We see God's hand in all of that story. But what we were saying, even in that story, is like, what is the implications? What does it mean that these lessons that we can learn from this runner Jonah that... Man, he runs from God, but God continues to pursue him. And he calls him. And we said salvation. There's a great line and in, uh, in, in specifically in this book. And it says, salvation is of the Lord. You see, what's, what was standing in the way, which is so in, what's so incredible about that, that, that book of Jonah is what was standing in the way of Nineveh and their repentance and their trusting in God and their repenting of their sin and their evilness. It wasn't specifically their sin, Yes, their sin had separated them from God. We know that from Scripture. If you look at all of Scripture, sin separates us from a holy God. But what was preventing them from repenting? We were saying it was Jonah. Jonah stood in the way. He runs away, and God says, "Uh uh-uh, because God is all powerful. And he says, no, 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 you can't run from me. You can try to go 2,500 miles the other direction away from, from where you are and 500 miles to Nineveh. You can run 3,000 miles away from Nineveh, but I can still watch you and see you and I know you. So I'm going to cause this storm and i going to draw you out. And so Jonah repents. He repents in the belly of a fish and then he goes, but he kind of goes dutifully. It's kind of like, okay, I, God, I'll, I'll, I'll submit. I'll do what you want me to do. But what we said is this, is God is not just after dutiful obedience. He's after a gospel-motivated obedience. It's a heart that is like his. God said, why, I should, why should I, if you're pitying this plant, why should I not pity this great city of Nineveh, even with this 130,000, or 150,000 people? Why should I? And God says, I have a heart for these people, even though they're so evil. Jonah didn't have that heart. He didn't have God's heart. And what God is after is a heart that's motivated by the gospel. And that kind of leads us to where we are now fast forwarding to the New Testament. John chapter 1. So that was my really quick version. So if you missed all of those, you just got it basically uh, in five minutes. So um, this this book is an incredible book. The book of John. All the gospels are unique. John is is even more so unique. You have the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And then John comes from a different perspective. It's neat, though. He's going to actually go all the way back to the beginning. The others, they kind of point to the beginning of Jesus' public ministry or his birth. And so they start there. Here, John's like, I'm going to take you all the way to the beginning, the beginning. And he does this. And what's incredible about this book and what I hope Scripture does for you, as it is doing and continues to do in my life, is it gives me a bigger picture of who God is. Every year of my life, as I read more Scripture and as I learn more about who God is, it almost seems like God gets bigger, right? Um, I, I love how C.S. Lewis, one of my uh, favorite, I had my children, which I'm like, we watched uh, Chronicles of Narnia, like, I don't know, a few, a few, I don't know, it was probably a month or so ago, and uh, watched the first one uh, with the Chronicles of Narnia, and, and like, man, Levi was like, uh-uh, he was too terrified, so he ran upstairs. <laughs> Colson stuck around, but he seemed terrified too, and uh, I'm like, no, you will watch this. You will learn so many great lessons about God in this book. And they're going like, who's Aslan again? I'm like, okay, let me just pause. Let me explain, you know, or whatever. But one of the great lines in this book, because C.S. Lewis was a believer, and he, uh, and, and he has Aslan, who is this massive, if you've watched the movie or if you read the books, you know he's this massive lion, and he has this picture of Christ in the, in the books, in all the books. And, and, and so I love what, so, so this, Lucy has this interaction with Aslan, and uh, as she's gazing into his large, wise face, she says, she's like, or he says, welcome, child, he said. And Aslan said, Lucy, or Aslan said, Lucy, you're bigger now. Like she's, she begins to say, you're bigger. And and then uh, he answers and says, that is because you are older, little one. And then not because you are. And he says, I am not, but every year you grow, you will find me bigger. It's not because Aslan is bigger, it's, and it's because she's had more time with Aslan, but more she has experienced who he is and gotten to know him. He seems bigger every time to Lucy. And I hope that's the truth when you go to scripture, when you open up God's word, that it, God becomes bigger and bigger. It's not that he's actually any bigger. It's because the more time you've had with him, the bigger uh, he becomes. And so what I want us to do really this, this morning is just look at four truths. And you have some notes there in front of you. It's um, really just four truths. There's so much. This is the prologue of John's gospel, all of these 18 verses. It's an incredible study. We could spend weeks uh, and look at different uh, focuses. But today I want us to focus on these four truths about the incarnation that should shape how we live. So four truths about the incarnation that should shape how we live. I want us to first just read this, uh, this section. We'll let, read just chapter one, one through 18 together. So if you have God's word in front of you, let's look at it together. He says this, "In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, verse 9, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. known. Man, what an incredible opening to an incredible book that I hope that you will study and spend your life studying these Gospels. I want us to pray, and then we're going to look at these four truths about the incarnation that should shape how we live. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the Word who became flesh and dwelt among us. We thank you that you are God and there was no one like you. Uh, We thank you that you came And I hope that this morning, my prayer this morning as well, and what I'm asking you to do through your spirit is to help teach us and show us how we're to live in light of this wonderful truth of your coming, that you were sent into our world, you invaded our world. So help us to open up our eyes and open up our hearts. May your spirit do that work in us and it shape us, that it would mold us how we go about our lives, that we would live differently. Uh, because of the impact of your word and your spirit in our lives. And so uh, go before me even as we walk through this passage together and we ask it in Christ's name, amen. All right, so truth number one here. Truth number one, very simply, uh, if you have notes there, because Jesus is the eternal creator God, we can know that he cares for us. So let me say that again. Because Jesus is the eternal creator God, we can know that he cares for us. So here's what I mean by that is this. We, we learn that here. If you look at verse one through three, we see this. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. I mean, so first of all, we get to see who Jesus is. I mean, that is the question most people are asking. Jesus asked this of his disciples. Who do the crowd say that I am? And then specifically, he goes to Peter and to the disciples. Who do you say that I am? And then Peter's response, you are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. This is the question of the day. This is the question that has impacted everyone ever since there was a a human being. Who is God and what is he like? We learn here, we learn some amazing truths about God just in these few verses and really just these few lines. That Jesus is eternally existent. You see, some people have it all wrong. They're like, oh, they want to pray to baby Jesus. They think Jesus was just like this little infant, and this is who Jesus was. That, like, all of a sudden, Jesus came on the scene about 2,000 years ago. Now Jesus exists, and He was this creation. He was the first of all creation, maybe some would say. But what we see in Genesis 1, right? So if you go back to Genesis 1, this mirrors in the beginning, in the beginning, Um, God created the heavens and the earth. Here, in the beginning was the Word. So we see the parallels John was using with even Genesis 1. But in Genesis 1, there is no sign of God being created. In Genesis 1, when you read the creation account, there's no sign, there's no hint, there's nothing there telling us God had a beginning, that God was created. And in John 1, there is no sign of Jesus also being created. You see, Jesus is unique. He's eternally existent. He has always been and will always be. The word was, notice this, it says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the, that last phrase, and the word was God. The question is, does that statement, does that matter? Is, is, that, is that an important truth to believe and to hold to? I mean, the, the argument is definitely say, absolutely, yes, it matters. Why, why does that matter? Well, because if you were to pick up a Bible, well, I will not call it a Bible, but if you'd pick up a translation of what people would say is the Bible, the New World Translation, and you, which is used by Jehovah's Witnesses, if you looked at this verse, if you took that Bible and looked at it, or if you Googled it on your phone and looked up the New World Translation, and you go to verse 1, and you start to read this phrase, and you say, the Word was with God, and the Word was, and all there is is just one little letter there, and it just, it's just kind of seems like you might read that and miss something here. And all it says is, and the Word was a God. All it says in that translation, is says a God. Just a one little change. The question is, does that matter? Does that one little change matter? Well yes, absolutely it matters because we're saying that that, that takes away that God is that, that Jesus is fully God. Not just he's not just a god, he's not just a deity of many deities. He is God. This is pointing us to the Trinity that God is one and that he is expressed himself and that he has distinct persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And Jesus is here being told by John that he is specifically God, this word was God. Notice this, he was in the beginning, not like literally like there was a beginning, but it's the point of like the beginning of time, what what mankind would understand, like before creation, before time, before there was a universe, there was God, and specifically there was Jesus as God. And so we learned this, though. Look what we learned, though, about verse three. All things, notice this, all things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. You see, Jesus, think about this. This is, I think this is such a, this is, I think, I don't know when this was, probably 10, 15 years ago. This really, I think, revolutionized and just continued to, that, that picture of Aslan getting bigger and bigger. This is what happened to me when, when I understood, like, Jesus created me. Knowing that I and all of other all of mankind would rebel against him. He still formed me, knitted me, he creates mankind, knowing that he's going to the cross one day. It wasn't like, oh man, Adam sinned. Eve sinned. Oh no, what am I gonna do? I, man, I guess I'm gonna have to come to earth one day and die on a cross. No, we learn in scripture in the New Testament, and Paul tells us this in Ephesians, that I mean, listen, before the foundations of the world, God already had a plan. This plan was already laid out. He's not responsive God. He is in control. He's a sovereign God and Lord and King. And here we learn that he created all things. I love how even John says all things. You see, my kids love Minecraft. I know your, none of you that have kids probably yet quite play Minecraft. Maybe you, as an adult, play Minecraft. I have no idea, but but uh, I'd play it sometimes. But it's because I have children. Okay, I promise. Um, but but my kids that when they go to Minecraft, they don't they don't they don't they don't say, hey, dad, like they want me to see their creations all the time. You know, they've made something, or if they make Legos too in our basement or something, they're like playing with Legos. They want me to, they want to show me all their creations. But when they go to Minecraft, they don't be like they don't just zoom out really big and say. Look at all that I've made, Dad. They don't just say, like, look at all of it. Like, just, I created everything. No, they, they, want to, they want me to see the details. And so they're like, hey, look at this. And they show me to a building. And I'm trying to keep my eyes open. And they're, and they're, and they're, and they're, and they're taking me up this ladder. And they're wanting to show me, like, hey, look how I made this ladder. How I put this here and put this trap door here. And I, and I made this slide and this water slide. And, and they take me to every single thing. It takes a long time. As Amanda and other family members know, you get, you get the full experience of the full tour. Uh, but, but in a sense, that is what John is saying when he says, when he just uses these words, all things were made through him. It's like every little thing Every whale, every snail, like every, that, that was weird. That, that was not planned. That was, that, was, that was definitely not planned. I never even knew I was going to say snail today. I didn't know I was going to say, I was going to say whale and then the snail just came out. So, but every, everything God has made, every little bit, every nose hair to the, the, the furthest thing that you can think of in the deepest sea, God made all of it, every thing and here's how that, uh, that that this applies to us and why this truth of the incarnation should shape how we live and even this truth in this verse is because Jesus as you have that first point because Jesus is the eternal creator God we can know that he cares for us because Jesus is all, he was fully God and he's the creator God that means he created you that means he created me and 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 sometimes that's hard right Right now, I know some of you probably are going through some extremely hard times, or you've gone through hard times, or guess what? They're going to come. The hard times are going to come. And it's going to make you question, does God actually care? Does He really care about every little detail? He does. He cares about you. Why? Not just because he, He is, ultimately because He is God, but also here in this, the intimacy of He created you. In, in, in the Old Testament, the psalmist says, in my mother's womb, you were forming me. You were knitting me together. God was intricately putting you though just the way you are. And I know sometimes that when you're like, man, I really wish this mole wasn't right where it is. Or I wish I had a different uh, hairstyle or something or whatever. Or I wish I wasn't going bald. Yeah, that's what I feel. And so it's like, I wish all these things. And you can wish your way around everything and say, God, I wish you... Here's the, here's the truth. God made you. He loves you. And we know He loves you because of what we see in this passage, that He came in verse 14, and we're going to look at that in a second. But Jesus is the eternal creator God, and we know that He cares for us, and that we can know that. You literally can know that He cares for you because He made you. He made you the way you are. And sometimes, like I said, that's, that can be really hard and frustrating and challenging and difficult to really feel, Is He care about me? But he absolutely does. And because Jesus is the eternal creator God, we can know that he cares uh, for us. The second one here is this. Because Jesus came as a man, we have the opportunity to become children of God. Because Jesus came, we have, the same, we have this opportunity to become the children of God. This is an unfathomable tr- belief, like a, a truth. Why on earth? Like, not only does God create me, and not only does He is He going to invade our planet, and He's going to come to my wor- our world, and He's going to ultimately die in our place. We're going to look at that in a section uh, in a second. But Jesus, He He comes and He says, not only this, I'm going to I'm going to offer you to become my children. You can be the children of God. Look with, with me really quickly, Romans chapter eight. So just over a, a few ch- a few chapters, a few books there, Romans chapter eight. This. A great um, illustration of this uh, in Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 14, says this, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Why on earth would that be possible? Why would I ever get to be a co-heir with Christ? He's done way more than I ever could imagine thinking of doing. I can't do anything. And he did everything, and yet here it says by, and, and we're learning in chapter 1, it says it's specifically by faith. I mean, listen, look at verse 12, chapter 1, verse 12 again in John. But to all who did receive him, so you receive Christ. Specifically, we learn how you receive Christ. By faith, who believed in his name. Notice this. He gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Listen, because of our faith in who Christ is and what He has done, we can go back to Romans. You don't have to turn there, but we can cry out, Abba, Father. We can call Him. When we pray, we pray to the Father in the Son's name, and we do it through the power of the Spirit. We communicate and commune with the Father in the power of the Spirit, but in Christ's name. It's because of His shed blood on the cross that we can have access to Him. And because Jesus came, because He comes to our planet, because He comes and He is sent into our world, we get the opportunity to become the children of God. I, I, I could speak on this for days through our adoption. I, we got to see this more and more of the adoption that Christ does for us because you know, what I learn often is I'm a terrible dad. I learn that often. If you're a parent and your kids are unruly sometimes, which is often, <laughs> you learn how quickly you're not like God. You're not like a heavenly father because there's times where I'm just upset, I'm angry, I'm frustrated. That happened this week. Man, it's like the middle of the night and Grace is just wide awake and yelling and screaming. And it's like, I just want sleep. It's vacation. Like, surely you're supposed to get some extra sleep on vacation. It's like, never happens. It's always the opposite. <laughs> Vacation's always worse in that way with the sleeping. And so, uh, and so like, I, I can feel it. In my, in my, 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 it's like my blood is boiling. I'm getting angry. At my daughter, who I have adopted into my family. I have, in a sense, we've chosen her. Like God, we see this. God chooses us. Like he comes and he adopts us into his family. We don't deserve to be in his family. And here I look at this picture and I'm like, man, God, I am terrible dad. I do not love like you. And what it helps me see is like, God, when I want to be so frustrated with my children or so frustrated with my daughter, and yet here you are when I continue to sin and fall short and when I continue to go against your word or ignore you, and yet you continue to love me? Like, that's so unfair. Like, why would God love me? And here we have this opportunity to become a child of God. And listen, that radically changes how you live. The truth that you are a child of God. If you put your faith in Christ, if you are a believer, a follower of Jesus, you're a child of God. And that should radically change how you live. Listen, it radically changed my daughter's life. I I don't ever talk about us being rescuers because I feel like it's not like that at all. Like, man, but like her life, I don't, I'm, I'm also, I get anxious and like I get upset when i think about it this way too is like man what happens if no one would have adopted her i mean i'm pretty sure she would just have wasted away maybe even died i don't know she was so neglected i'm so thankful that she is a part of our family but she's teaching us so much but man that points me again god i was lost i was as 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 romans 8 says here it says like we were enslaved (laughs) like here we are we're He says, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. So it'd be like, if God has called me out, why would I ever go back to the orphanage again? No one would want to go back to that life again. But here he's saying, like, why would you ever go back to that? You have the opportunity to be called, to to call out and say, Abba, Father. To call out to God as your actual father and Jesus to be a co-heir with you. That you get every right that he is given. You get to be, uh, you get that experience, an experience of sonship, which we don't understand in our culture, the sonship aspect of that verse. That, listen, I mean, the eldest son, you probably learned that if you've paid a little bit of attention to scripture, the prodigal son, um, if you look at Jacob and Esau, like who got the greater blessing? The firstborn got the greater blessing. This firstborn that, that was, got a majority of the inheritance, they got the love of the inheritance. And here he's saying, like, you get the right as sons of God that we get the inheritance with, of Christ. Like, we get to ex- co-heirs with him. This is a great truth. So because Jesus came, we have the opportunity to become children of God. Third truth about the incarnation that should shape how we live is this. Because Jesus came, we can experience grace upon Grace. I want to let that, that phrase stick in because that's just scripture here. That's what we're going to see, this grace upon grace. Look at this in verse four. In verse fourteen is where we see specifically the incarnation, the word. So God was He was fully God. Jesus has always existed, and in the incarnation in verse fourteen, He comes and He takes on human. Form. He doesn't transform uh, like a butterfly or, or like a, a, a whatever they're called, a caterpillar into a butterfly. It's not like he, he takes on a new form and now he's a butterfly and he's no longer uh, a caterpillar. No, God takes on humanity onto his deity. And he, and he comes into our world as fully God and fully man. And, and this is what's incredible. He dwells among us. He comes and he comes and he's like, hey, I'm going I'm to be with people. I'm going to experience life as a human as well. And so he experiences temptation. And so that Hebrews can tell us that, listen, he, can, he sympathizes with our weaknesses. He sympathizes with our struggles because he's experienced it too. And so here we learn, though, that because Jesus came, we can experience specifically grace upon grace. Look at verse 14. The Word became flesh, dwelt among us. We have seen His glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of, notice this, grace and truth. We have truth and grace. You have to have both. The truth of who God is, what He has done, who are we in light of what we have done and what Christ has done. The truth, but then also grace. But notice, continuing on in verse 15, John bore witness about Him and cried out, this was He of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. Notice verse 16. For from his, Jesus, from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. This is a really interesting wording by John. Because, I mean, when you think of grace, it's undeserved. It's like, like you're lavished, right? Like you're given something you don't deserve. And here's this gift here, I'm giving it to you. Here, it is yours. I give it to you. It's grace. You does nothing, it's unmerited favor. Like, you don't deserve it. Here, I give you grace. I'm offering you grace. But here he says, grace on top of grace. <laughs> like, it's grace overflowing with more grace. This is really a remarkable statement. Look at, you don't have to look there. I'll just read it. Romans 5, verse 20. Paul says it this way. He says, uh, wrong page. Five, verse 20 he says this now the law came in to increase the trespass but where sin increased grace abounded all the more where sin is getting worse grace is always continuing to get more and more because you can there's no there's no sin that God's grace can't cover there's no there's no there's no height of our sin there's no amount of sin that there's not enough grace for it's not like grace runs out like I've run out of gas before driving my car that was a I haven't done that in a long time, thankfully. That was back in college days when I had no money. And I still drive it to the limit, though, I'm not going to lie. But thankfully, they always tell you zero, and the zero that doesn't mean anything. There's still a little extra gas in there somewhere. Um, but like you, you, eventually, you run out, right? Like, eventually, like the, like you drink water, eventually, it's gone. Here, this idea is grace is it can.